Praise the Lord. Well, does anybody know where we start on Wednesday nights? Genesis 126. Good. I've got you trained. You're listening. Good. Genesis 126. We're talking about the believer's authority. God, after having made everything in the earth, provided for the man that he had planned to create, made provision for him in every way possible, says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over the earth, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. It is an undisputable fact that God created man to have authority on the earth. Now, there are some things that um, the Lord's really been dealing with me about here just this last week that I want to share with you. I learned something um, 38 years ago from Brother Hagen. Um, there was you remember the scripture where it talks about Jesus ministering in the temple and um, and actually the Jews had sent officers temple officers to to capture him and uh, and they got to where Jesus was and they didn't do anything to take him captive uh, they let him go and then the Jews called him under, called them in question why didn't you do what we told you to do why didn't you capture him and one of the things that they said is never a man spake like this man. Well, I can relate to that in, in part at least because when I first started hearing Brother Hagin, I'd never heard anybody preach like that. I'd never heard anybody preach that you can have victory. I grew up in a denominational church, lovely people, loved God with all their hearts, loved God to the, to the extent, the full extent of what they knew about God, but they just didn't know much. And consequently... They never knew who was doing what in their lives. Trouble would come. They didn't know whether to pray against it. They always wanted out of it. But they didn't know if it was right to pray against it because maybe God was bringing it to them to teach them something. Well, I grew up with that mindset. So when I got around Brother Hagin, or not even when I got around him, when I first started hearing him on tape, um, it just had an impact on me like nothing ever had before. Well, I went to school there at Rama. Uh, had the opportunity, privilege, to be around Brother Hagen after a, a period of time, really a pretty short period of time of being there at school. But he said something that, uh, that has stuck with me all my life and always will. And he said this. Now, remember, I have never heard anybody talk about being led by the Holy Ghost. Didn't know you could until I heard him. Started seeing what he was preaching in the Bible. And then he made this statement. He said, I go as much by what God doesn't say as what he does. Well, I didn't understand that. It it took me a little bit of time to to figure out what he was talking about. Maybe the best way to explain it is that so often people are looking for direction from God to tell them what to do or where to go or how to do what they're supposed to do or whatever it is. And Brother Hagin's approach, as he taught us, was that if God hasn't told you to go somewhere, it's because you're not supposed to go. If he hasn't told you to do something, then that's not what you're supposed to do. If he hasn't told you how to do it, 
then it's either not the thing you're supposed to do or it's not time to do it. And so that has served me well over the last 38 years. And I've learned to apply that where the scripture is concerned too. For example, here, it's, like I said, it's an indisputable fact, not widely accepted, but it's an indisputable fact that God created man to have a dominion on the earth. It's also an indisputable fact that God created man after his image and in his likeness. The literal meaning of those two Hebrew words, likeness and image, is that God made man an exact copy or duplicate of himself. Now, that's hard for our minds to, to grasp. How could we may be made an exact copy of God when we don't have God's power? We don't have God's unlimited ability. We don't have God's omnipresence. There are so many things about God, the creator, that is beyond us. It's hard for us to understand or to accept that we're made in his image and after his likeness an exact duplication in kind. But that is the law of Genesis, folks. Everything produces after its own kind. Well, then what would God produce when he made man? if not after his own kind. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, we see that God places man in the garden and he gives him instruction. He tells him in verse... uh, Let's start in verse 16. Genesis 2, well, let's back up a little bit, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. The the Hebrew rendering, uh, a literal Hebrew rendering of that phrase, Thou shalt surely die, into English would be, Dying thou shalt die. In other words, he's talking about death beginning and then progressing. And for that reason, man didn't die physically. Adam didn't die physically for 930 years after, until 930 years after he sinned. But now notice in verse, uh, what was it, verse 15, where it says he took man and put him in the garden to dress and to keep it. The first thing that the scripture tells us in relation to God's command is that he gave him a job. Now we know God's intent from Genesis 126 was for man to have dominion. So the job that he gives man has to be in line with the dominion that he is intended by God to hold and to execute. Would that be a fair assumption? That'd have to be true, would it not? Notice what he told him to do. He put man, or what he gave him to do. He put man in the garden to dress it and to keep it. Now, I usually translate this as garden protect because I've always focused on protecting the earth against the enemy. But this word dress means a variety of things. It does mean to guard. One meaning is to guard. But maybe the more important meanings associated with this word is to work, to labor, or to bring to pass. So God put man in the Garden of Eden to dress it, to work the garden, to labor in the garden. And to bring to pass in the garden. Well, bring to pass what? Well, it would have to be the will of God. And up until this point in time, until uh, Adam falls and sin enters the scene, he knows nothing but the will of God. He has no experience with anything but the will of God. He is spiritually alive. The same spirit that dwells in him is the spirit of God himself. 
He's quickened or made alive by God breathing in his body. And man becomes a living soul, literally an eternal spirit. So the only thing he knows is the will of God. So God put man in the garden with two jobs or two facets of one job, whichever way you want to say it. And that is to bring his will to pass in the Garden of Eden and to protect it. Now, the reason I told you what I'd learned from Brother Hagin about going as much by what God doesn't say is what he does say. Notice what God doesn't say. He tells him that he can freely eat of the trees of the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Amplified Bible calls that blessing and calamity. Notice what God does not say. God does not say now, Adam, there's a being down on the earth that was cast out of heaven because he rebelled against me with a third of the angels. His name is Satan, and he's your mortal enemy. You have a job to protect against him at all costs. Every work that you do needs to be focused around that eternal enemy, mortal enemy, that's here in the earth. Why didn't God tell him that? Furthermore, when God says you can eat of every tree of the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, why doesn't he tell him what the consequences are going to be? Why didn't he elaborate about what the consequences are going to be? He says, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, we know that he's talking about spiritual death, and that was an instant result. When Adam fell, the light literally went out of him or went off within him. I believe he was clothed with the glory of God. What would a righteous man that was filled with the spirit of God, whose life source was the very spirit of God, look like if not clothed with the glory of God, a light surrounding him? When Jesus appeared in glory on the mountain of transfiguration, that's what he looked like. Why would it have been different with Adam? I believe he was clothed with the glory of God. But nevertheless, we know spiritually the light went out. Whether it was a physical light or not, spiritually the light went out. But now why did not God not tell him? Again, let's go as much by what God doesn't say as what he does. Why did God not say, for in the day that you eat thereof, you'll lose your authority? In the day you eat thereof, Satan will become the God of this world. In the day that you eat thereof, you'll lose control of your tongue. It will become set on fire of the course of hell. And your life will be dominated by sin, sickness, and lack. Why didn't you tell him that? If it works the way that most of the church world thinks that it works, with the devil in control of things, in this life and in this age then God would have been unjust not to tell Adam those things there's only one possible answer that I can come up with you judge it for yourself but there's only one possible answer that I can come up with why God did not say that when you disobey me when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil all these things will happen there's only one reason that I can come up with why God would not say 
Satan is your mortal enemy, so this dressing and keeping the garden is all about keeping him out. And that one possibility is that Satan was never an issue. See, Satan is not an issue if Adam just obeys God. It's not necessary for Adam to know everything about the devil, about his history, about how his kingdom is set up, how many classes of demons there are, or any other goofy thing that people get hung up on. It's a totally irrelevant issue. Because Adam's one job is to bring about the will of God in the Garden of Eden. We know that the only way that God showed him to bring about his will on the earth was the record that we have where God saw, God said, and it was so. So we're selling the dress and keep the garden. The same means of protecting the garden is the means of bringing about or bringing to pass God's will in the garden, and that is through the exercise of authority through words, the exercise of man's dominion through the spoken word. As long as he does that, Satan is not an issue. Now, some might say, well, he may not have told him that, but that's exactly what it is. Once Satan, once uh, Adam fell, yielded to Satan's influence, once he fell, then Satan does become the God of this world. That means God of this world system, not God of the earth. God of the present corrupt system where man's tongue is set on fire of hell. As a natural course. See so many times people think. That everybody's in charge of things. Except the one that really is. You get bumper stickers. And you got churches teaching worldwide. That God's in control. Well God's in control of what? So much of the church world. Thinks God's in control of everything. Everything that happens. This, this was the general thinking. Of course you couldn't. It, logically it doesn't play out. To its end conclusion. But this was the general thinking of the church that I grew up in. God's in control. But what does that mean? If God's in control of everyone, then why didn't God stop Adam from disobeying him? It was certainly God's will that Adam live without sin, was it not? Had to be. Yet God knew the future better than we know the past. And so he saw, foresaw before he ever made man that Adam would sin in the garden. Now, notice again something else God didn't say. He didn't say, Adam, I give you dominion and authority over all the work of my hands until you sin. Then I'll take things back over. Furthermore, he didn't say, I'm giving you authority over all the work of my hands in the earth. But don't worry, I'll keep you from making a mistake. Adam might have liked that proposition, but that's not what he said. And so Adam uses his authority, or maybe we should say he misuses his God-given authority, and sin enters the scene. Satan becomes God of this world system. The system changed, not the will of God. Well, yeah, but Pastor Mike, doesn't the Bible say that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof? Yeah. What does that mean? It means God owns the earth because he created it. doesn't mean he's running things. 
Yeah, but there are scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it talks about how the, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He'll turn it wherever so he'll, where, wheresoever he wills. But folks, let me ask you a question. If God's controlling kings in the earth, then we would have to conclude it's the will of God for things to go wrong in the earth. Because you know as well as I do, most the, the vast majority of kings that rule on the earth, whether you call them presidents or kings or dictators or whatever, the vast majority of rulers here on the earth are out for their own benefit, not the will of God. Well, then is, the, is it the will of God for man to rule contrary to the will of God? That doesn't make sense. So what does it mean where it says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord? He'll turn it wheresoever he wills. Does that ever or could that ever mean that God will usurp man's authority to make his own choice according to his own will? That's impossible. It simply means that God will influence a king and if he'll yield to his influence, he'll lead him in paths of righteousness. But there's never been a king. There's never been a dictator. There's never been a ruler. There's never been a human being that has not had authority in their own life to make the choices that they wanted to make. If that were not true, then the word of God would be a lie. Because the Bible says that God has exalted his name above his power. Psalm 138 verse 2. Which means it's not a matter of what God can do. Well, can't God force somebody to do what he wants to? Yeah, if he's willing to violate his word, he could. The reality is he'll never violate the word. That's why Psalm 115 verse 16 says, the, the heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth is he given to the children of men. David understood that. Now, some might say, yeah, but since man lost his authority at the fall, then God's in control again. Turn with me over to Genesis chapter 11. Here's what that would mean. That would mean man only had authority when he was righteous. That would have to mean that Adam only had authority when his tongue was hooked up with his spirit when he was operating according to God's plan and purpose prior to the introduction of sin into the scene. But let's see if that holds true with the Bible. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. One speech literally means a few words. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, go to, let us make brick. Go to is King James English for listen up. Let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower. Whose top may reach into heaven and let us make a name, make us a name. Lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. 
two points I want you to see. First of all, Satan is not mentioned in this, in this story. How come? There's got to be a reason. I have no doubt whatsoever but that Satan has influenced their ideas. But why isn't he identified? Where it says, let us build us a name, that literally means let us set ourselves up as God's. So why isn't Satan, and that's certainly the same thing that Satan tried to do when he tried to usurp his throne and exalt his throne above God's. He said, I will ascend and I will exalt my throne above the heavens, which means he had to have a throne which was below the heavens, which sounds a lot like earth. So I have no doubt whatsoever that their, influ- their, their thinking, their imaginations and their speech is being influenced by the devil. We know that man lost control of this tongue and the tongue, according to James chapter 3, is set on fire of hell. It would have been set on fire of hell then too, wouldn't it? They're obviously not operating according to the plan and the purpose of God. They're obviously not seeking God about what they should do or what God's plan for them is or what direction they should take or whatever else. So they're operating according to their own desires influenced by the devil. That would have to be true because sin has entered the scene and passed upon all, all men. Yet Satan is not mentioned. And the second thing I want you to see is that God says, because they're all saying the same thing, because they're all united in purpose, nothing will be restrained from them whatever they've imagined to do. Now, folks, I would submit to you the tower is not the problem. The tallest building on the face of the earth at this present time is 22,722 feet. It's in the United Arab Emirates, UAE. Tall buildings must not be a problem for God. Now, if they were talking about a a building or a tower that literally reached into heaven, all God would have had to do is let them build that thing to where it got to 15,000 feet. They'd have lost oxygen falling off that thing like flies. Not a real problem for God. But the thing I want you to see is that God is saying that he's not the one in control of this. He's saying that because they're all speaking the same language, they're united in purpose and in speech, nothing will be restrained from them. They found the secret to accomplishing anything. They found the secret to exercising their dominion and authority here on the earth. Now, this is not the full gospel businessmen's fellowship. Their plans are evil. But God is saying that they have the opportunity to exercise their authority in such a way that is contrary to the plan and purpose of God. But even so, they can still do whatever they want to do. How is God in control of that? Maybe a better question is, how has man lost his authority according to this story? He hasn't. So what does God do? He confounds their language. He makes it to where they can't understand each other. He makes it so that they can't exercise their authority in, in unison because they're no longer saying the same thing and able to communicate. Notice the importance of your words or your speech in the exercise of man's authority on the earth. 
We see that same thing holding true in one of the the, um, landmark events where the nation of Israel was concerned. In Numbers chapter 13, they get to the edge of the promised land and they send the 12 spies in to spy out the land to see how they're going to take it, take it over. The 12 spies come back. Ten of them could bring back an evil report. That evil report winds up or basically is they say, we can't do what God said we can do. God said we can take the land. He said the land was ours, but we can't do it. The people are stronger than us. They'll defeat us militarily. We can't do it. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say God's on our side. We can do it. Two of them are in faith. Ten of them are in doubt and unbelief. The congregation is listening to both sides of the story, and they went with the majority report, which is rarely ever right. But the important thing is that after the congregation of Israel lifts up their voice and cries, begins to complain against Moses and against God and so forth, God says something to them that's very, very significant. It's in Numbers chapter 14. Um, I'm not sure what verse it is. It's about verse 28, I think. I didn't write it down. Let me see if I can find it. Numbers chapter 14. It's, yeah, it's Numbers chapter 14, verse 28. God says to Moses to give instruction to the children of Israel. He says, say unto them, as truly as I live. That's a little blind to us, but it literally means here's an eternal principle. Never changing, never ending principle. That's how God lives, isn't it? Eternally and unchanging. He says, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. As you have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. Now, where's the devil? I have no doubt that the devil influenced the ten spies' report of doubt and unbelief, their evil report. But why isn't the devil mentioned in this story? There are really very few stories in the Bible where the devil is identified or spoken of as being any major player or character. You know why? Because the devil is never an issue. The devil is not the problem in your life. In the same way that God told Adam, if you obey my words, you do what I told you to do and exercise your authority through the spoken word, through speaking my words, the devil is not your problem. Even after the fall, the same thing is true. God tells Israel, who's got a covenant with him, who's, has, who's the only nation on the face of the earth at that time, to whom the word of God was delivered. He says, tell them, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. By your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned, is the way Jesus said it in Matthew twelve thirty-five. Your words are the key factor, not the devil. Now, let's fast forward to Jesus. Let's look at some things that happened in Jesus' life and in Jesus' ministry. Turn with me to John chapter... Let's start in John chapter 10. These are some scriptures that, that quite frankly, I looked over for a long time 
without seeing the importance thereof. But now I'm starting to see them in a whole new light. Jesus starts in verse 1. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Now the sheepfold has got to be the earth. Some people have preached that this is heaven. And if you climb up some other way into heaven, you're in trouble. Well, there is no other way into heaven except Jesus. Heaven does not have a back stairway. So he can't be talking about heaven. What is the sheepfold there for? Well, David said, inspired by the Holy Ghost, that we are the sheep of his pasture. So the earth is the sheepfold. So when Jesus says, the thief climbs up another way, or anybody that climbs up another way is a thief and a robber. He's contrasting himself and the devil. He's saying the devil gained illegal entry into the earth. Illegal entry into the earth. But he goes on. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. What's the entrance into the world? Natural birth. So notice what Jesus is saying. He's saying the fact that he who identified himself 60 times in the uh, in out of, 60 times out of 65 in the four gospels as the son of man he's saying i've gained my place legal entry into the world through the virgin birth that was the virgin birth because he bypassed the sin that passed upon all mankind i'm convinced the devil didn't understand the reality or the importance of the virgin birth i'm not sure much of the church does either So he says, here's the difference between me and the devil. The devil gained illegal entry. He was not born into this world. I believe that had a lot to do with why God didn't fill Adam in in the Garden of Eden with all the details and all the specifics of Satan in his history. He's a non-issue because he's an illegal alien. He had to take the form of a serpent to have any influence whatsoever. And that's why evil spirits try to dominate or inhabit human beings. Because they gain their fullest range of expression or influence only when they inhabit a body. Because evil spirits, along with the devil, has no influence in the earth except through someone else's body, a legal resident's body. So if we learn to deny him access... The devil is still not a problem. He's still not our problem. So Jesus goes on, contrasts himself with the devil. To him the porter openeth, talking about himself, to him the porter openeth and the sheep hear his voice. Now the porter is God operating through Jesus by the Holy Ghost. In other words, he's saying, because I've gained legal entry into the earth by being born of a woman. And remember, that's the, the plan of God from the beginning. Let us make man after our image and in our likeness. Or in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over all the works of our hands throughout the earth. Jesus is saying, I have legal right to exercise authority in the earth. And because I have a legal right, because I'm born of a woman, 
God has opened the heavens unto me, anointed me with the Holy Ghost so that I can call my own to follow me. Can you see that's what he's saying? Think about this, folks. What happens when a person dies physically? Well, they no longer eat. They no longer speak. They no longer sleep. They can't cause trouble. They can't riot. In fact, the only thing that I know that dead people can still do after they die, or that people can do after they die, is vote Democrat. Besides that, once you leave the, leave the planet, you've lost all authority whatsoever. Have you not? I wish that was just a joke. Sadly, it's not. So Jesus is saying, I've got a legal right to operate on the earth. Now, in order to, to obtain that legal right, there were some things that he had to do. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8 says that he made himself, King James says he made himself of no reputation who was found in the form of a servant or took upon himself the form of mankind in other words. That phrase made himself of no reputation is a little bit difficult to translate into the King James or at least the translators considered it to be difficult. And the King James translators, when it came to the power of God or the idea that God was in control, they seem to translate everything according to that understanding, that doctrine that they believe to be true. Because made himself of no reputation literally says in most translations, translate, or many translations at least, translates, he emptied himself. He emptied himself and came in the form of a man. Well, emptied himself of what? What would Jesus have to empty himself of to come to the earth to be a man? Now, clearly... The implication or the meaning of the verse is he took a step down to become man. But now what is that step down? Man is made in the image of God and after his likeness. An exact duplication or copy of God. So what's the step down? Jesus was a spirit being in heaven with God before he came to the earth. He was a spirit being when he came. What's the step down? It has to be that he emptied himself of heavenly power and glory. And came to the earth to be a man. He didn't, didn't empty himself of being a spirit. God's a spirit. Man's a spirit. Man's created after God's own kind. So what's the step down? It has to be heavenly power and glory. It has to be the omnipotence of God. And the all powerfulness of God. The all knowing nature of God. In other words. He's laying aside his heavenly power and glory. That goes beyond the limitations of man, human beings, and came to earth to be just like you and me. And what most of the church doesn't realize, and again is hard for many people to grasp, is that Jesus therefore could not have healed and done miracles on the earth because he was the son of God. He was just as much the son of God at age 29 as he was at age 30 when he began his ministry. Why didn't he do any miracles at age 29? Some might say, well, it wasn't time for him to enter his ministry. Well, okay, I'll go along with that. But what was the beginning point of his ministry? 
if not the baptism of John in the Jordan River, where the Holy Ghost comes upon him in bodily shape as a dove, and Jesus begins preaching that he's anointed by the Holy Ghost to do miracles and to heal. He says himself that it was the anointing of God that enabled him to do the miracles. Now, this was all the plan of God. This was all the purpose of God. This was all what Jesus was sent to the earth to do. So notice again, he says, to him the porter openeth. This is how God opened the door for Jesus. Not the door to the earth. That was through the virgin birth, but the door to heaven. Now he's anointed with the Holy Ghost to do healing works and miracles. To him the porter openeth. And the sheep hear his voice, that's you and me. And he calls his own by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth his own sheep, he goes before them. He's talking about paying the price for death. He's talking about going to the cross and being resurrected. The firstborn of many brethren. He goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. And notice what he says. They know his voice. It doesn't say the sheep follow him because he has the loudest voice. See, too many people are influenced in life by the loudest voice. And I don't know if you've noticed or not. But the devil always tries to shut up the truth by speaking loud. You get these talking head political things on TV. Somebody starts making a point of truth. What happens? Their opponent immediately gets loud. They immediately start shouting them down. Doesn't matter that what they may be saying is true. They don't want anybody to hear the truth. It's the way the devil operates, folks. He'll create such a turmoil and such a loudness in your spirit or in your life to try to drown out the voice of God in your spirit. But Jesus said, my sheep will follow me because they know my voice. Talking relationship. And a stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him for they know not the voice of strangers. See, when you come to understand the difference between the voice of God and the voice of the devil and learn to discern them, and you can always discern it by judging it according to the word. Then you won't want to follow the devil anymore. And you'll be equipped not to. Jesus goes further. And says in verse 7, I'm the door of the sheep. Now he's talking about the door into heaven. He's not talking about the door into the earth. He's talking about I'm the door of the sheep through the resurrection. Um, I don't want to read this whole thing. I'm running out of time. Let me skip down to verse. Well, I got to read verse 10. I got to read verse 9. I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved. So he's talking about the door into salvation, which is the resurrection. And shall go in and out and shall find pasture. The thief cometh not. Now, remember, he's identified the thief in verse 1 as the one that came in as an illegal alien. He climbed up some other way other than the new birth, or other than the natural birth. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy what? God's creation. What was his purpose in the Garden of Eden? To destroy God's creation. Now, don't personalize this. Don't say the devil's out to destroy me. He couldn't care less about you. 
And I'll show you something about him in a minute that, that I hope blesses you. It certainly does me. But the devil's not interested in you as an individual. He couldn't care less about you. What he's out to do is to destroy God's creation. If he takes someone's life through sickness and disease, he's destroyed God's creation. If he steals from man what belongs to him through ignorance of his own authority, then he's stolen God's creation. Anything that he destroys, whether it's in your personal life or if it's even a country, he's destroying God's creation. The thief cometh not but for to kill, to steal, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Um, Skip down to verse 17. Therefore does my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. Now, folks, remember where he started off with this. He started off talking about the authority that he had on the earth because he was a man, human being. He came in legally through the, new, through the virgin birth. He has legal right to exercise authority on the earth because he's a man. I don't want to assume that everybody's got that. Man is the one that has authority here. He had it in here before Satan entered the scene and sin passed upon all man. He has it now. Man has authority. The devil does not have authority in your life. The only access he has to any part of your life whatsoever is to convince you through deception or whatever to misuse your authority. By that phrase, I mean to use your authority Contrary to God's will. To use your authority against the word. That's what he did with the 12 spies in the congregation of Israel. He influenced them to be moved by what they saw. In the comparison they made between themselves and the the enemies in the land. So he robbed them of God's blessings. God intended for them to enter into the promised land 40 years before they did. One generation before they did. It was the will of God for them to take the promised land. But the will of God was thwarted. The blessings of God were destroyed in their lives because Satan influenced them, convinced them, them meaning the ten spies in the congregation of Israel, to use their authority through their words against God's plan and purpose. They could have done the same thing that Caleb and Joshua did. And taken hold of the promised land. They had the ability. To use their authority through the spoken words. Through their words being spoken out of their mouths. To take the promised land. That's what God wanted for them. God tells what the eternal law is. As you've spoken in my ears. That's what I'll do. What did they speak in his ears? We can't do it. We'll die trying to take the promised land. It's better to die in the wilderness. So what did they get? Exactly what they said. Everybody in the story got exactly what they said. Caleb and Joshua said, we can do it. And they did. They were delayed 40 years. 
which is a good reason not to hang around people of unbelief. But they still did it. Everybody in the story got exactly what they said. Where'd we leave off? Verse 17. Therefore does my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. Now I want you to notice particularly uh, verse 17 says that God loved Jesus said my father loves me because I lay down my life. Now, notice in verse 18, he said, I have the power. That word power is the word authority. Why does he have authority? He has authority because he's born of a woman. He has authority on the earth. But here he says, I have authority to lay down my life and to take it up again. No man can take it from me. And remember, Jesus passed through the midst of people on several occasions where they tried to kill him. Notice what Jesus' confession was about his own authority. My authority controls even my very life. I will lay it down, but nobody can take it from me. I have authority to lay it down. He's talking about the crucifixion. And he says, I have authority to, to take it up again. Now, what does he mean, authority to take it up again? We know that when Jesus went to hell, he died spiritually. What is it, Romans 6, that says... The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. What death is the wages of sin? Physical death? If so, we didn't need Jesus to go to the cross. If physical death is the price to pay for sin, then all somebody has to do is die physically and they wake up in heaven. But we know that's not the way it works. Now, the death he's talking about is a contrast to eternal life. Well, the only death that's a contrast to eternal life is spiritual death. So if the wages of sin, talking about Adam's original sin, is death, if that's the price that must be paid, somebody had to pay it or else you still owe it. But thank God Jesus was our substitute. If Jesus did not die spiritually, then somebody still has to. Thank God he died spiritually. I know that's controversial. I know that's difficult for some people to accept, but that has to be true. Well, if Jesus dies spiritually... That means he's no longer a man with authority on the earth to raise himself up. That means he has to be completely in the hands of his father. What happens is a result of what God does for him and not what he does for himself. Well, how do we reconcile that with this scripture? No man takes my life, but I have the power or literally authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. Why does he say I have the authority to take it up? Notice the next phrase. This I have received from my father's command. This commandment have I received of my father. In other words, Jesus is saying very simply this. He's saying, God has told me what my purpose is here on the earth. So I choose as a human being on the earth, I choose to exercise my authority through the words spoken from my mouth in agreement with God's word. I will lay down my life and I will be raised up again. I know I'm out of time. Uh, Well, since I'm out of time, what am I going to do? 
Turn with me to John chapter 11. Let me show you how Jesus operated in his authority on the earth. And remember, Jesus is our example to follow. A lot of people just look at that as the example to follow as far as good works is concerned. But Jesus made a bigger deal out of being the son of man than he did just doing good works. Most of the works Jesus talks about is not what the church considers to be good works anyway. The works he's talking about are miracles and healings and so forth. Thank God we've been authorized to do those same works. But notice how Jesus handles a situation that would seem to be out of the control of any man. And I understand it's stories like this. It's the raising of Lazarus. It's stories like this that cause people to think that Jesus healed and did miracles because he was the son of God. But he's already said that he didn't. He said in several occasions, several times in John chapter 5, I was going to look at that, but we, like I said, we're running out of time. He said, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. Later on in the chapter, he said the same thing again. He said, I can do nothing of myself. Well, how can you interpret that to be true if Jesus is healing because he's the son of God? If Jesus is doing miracle works because he's the son of God, then how in the world could Jesus say truthfully that he's not doing it of himself? Do you see the point? Well, we know Jesus can't lie. So that must mean that we're going to have to change some of our thinking or the church world is going to have to change some of its thinking to come in line with what Jesus said. So if Jesus said he wasn't the one doing the works of himself, that would have to mean that he's not doing the works because he's the son of God. Well, then who's doing the works? He said the father in him did. Well, how's the father in him? By the anointing of the Holy Ghost. When he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Because that's when the miracles and the healing started. That's when the fame started spreading around. Throughout all the region. Of the things that he was doing. So in John chapter 11. Here's the story of Lazarus. Now a certain man was sick. Named Lazarus of Bethany. The town of Mary and her sister Martha. This was the Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment. And wiped his feet with her hair. Whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. I love that. The one you love is sick. Not the one that loves you. The one that you love. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he'd heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. And his disciples said unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and you're going there again. And Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbles not because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the light in the night, he stumbleth because there is no light in him. In other words, he's talking about being led of the Holy Ghost. These things said he, and after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleeps, he shall do well. They thought he was talking about a recovery. 
If he sleeps, he'll do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said plainly to them, Lazarus is dead. Now that's a poor translation. It literally means Lazarus died. Not is dead, but Lazarus died. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Now here's what I want you to see. Jesus was a man that was always led of his father. He even spoke of walking in the light versus walking in the, in the darkness when you could stumble. Now they tell us that the place where Jesus was and the place where Lazarus had died was a full day's journey. And so from the time that Lazarus was sick, nearly unto death or at the point of death, they travel a day to get to Jesus Jesus hears the report, stays two days, and then goes, travels to where, to Bethany, where Lazarus' house is. When he gets there, the sisters tell him, when he finally stands before the tomb, Martha says he's been dead for four days. So that's the timeline. Why did Jesus not immediately take care of things in, an, in one of two ways? Either travel as quick as he could to where Lazarus was, or speak the word and do something about it long range. There's no time or distance in the spirit. So he would have had the same authority, the same power to utilize from where he was a day away as if he was standing there. Why did he not do this? He seems to understand from the beginning what the direction of God is in this situation. I love this story because it, it reminds me to always keep my spiritual antenna up about what to do. And I'll have to say, when I was a younger man, I'd hear reports of things, and boy, I'd run off as quick as I could to try to take care of things. I don't do that anymore. You can't hardly get me to hurry about anything anymore. Used to aggravate me about Brother Hagin so bad I couldn't see straight. We'd hear about something or see something that needed to be done, and us young people would get around Brother Hagin and say, Dad, we've got to take care of this right now. He'd just laugh and he'd say, oh, you young boys, you're going to have to learn to slow down. We didn't want to slow down. We were full of energy and ready to kill somebody. Let's get it done. (laughs) The dad never would hurry. He'd always take his time. I'm not sure I've gotten as slow as he was, but I'm getting there. (laughs) And I take great pride in that too. But Jesus seemed to be this way. He didn't run off. He didn't hurry. He didn't say, oh, well, guys, we got to pray real quick. Or stand back, I'm going to exercise power from a a whole day away. He didn't do that. And he understood pretty early on, if not immediately, what would be the end result. And notice he speaks always of the end result. Let's examine his words. When Jesus heard that he was sick, verse 4, He said, this sickness is not unto death. Yeah, but we know Lazarus died. He's speaking the end result. He's saying the final outcome of this will not be the death of Lazarus. Now, what is he doing? He's exercising authority. He's using his authority through his words. John 5, 27 says, the father has given Jesus. Well, let me read it to you. I'm going to misquote it. I'm going to mess up. 
John 5, 27. Better start with verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. He's talking about the life of God within, the relationship that he has with the Father. Verse 27, and has given him, God has given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment also because he's the Son of Man. Not because he's the Son of God, because he's the Son of Man. Again, Jesus is talking about the authority that he has here on the earth because he was born of a woman, because he's a human being, because he laid aside his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth. God anointed him when he was 30 years old with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing all manner of sickness and disease among the people because God was with him. Well, what judgment did Jesus execute? He didn't execute judgment on man. What did he execute judgment on? Well, 1 John 3, 8 says, the last part of the verse says, for this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. He exercised judgment upon the devil and his works. He exercised judgment upon spiritual death and its counterparts or characteristics. Ultimately, he exercised judgment on spiritual death itself by dying spiritually himself. Can you see that? It's so important that we see that. And again, I know this is a foreign language to a lot of the church world. It's blasphemy to a good section of the church world. But it has to be true. When the Bible says Jesus was made sin for us, it literally says he became sin. So that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, if sin was just laid on Jesus and he didn't take it upon his own nature, if he was not born again from life to death, then you're not really born again from death to life. Because your righteousness is on the same level, the same par as Jesus' spiritual death. Or else he wasn't your substitute. So God gave Jesus authority, authority, authority as a human being to execute judgment on spiritual death and its partners, sin, sickness, and poverty because he was the son of man. So in John chapter 11, back to the story with Lazarus, he's exercising that authority upon the physical death that came as a result of sickness and disease. He says, this sickness shall not end ultimately in death. But for the glory of God. Not even his own glory, but for the glory of God. That the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So he goes on and talks about in verse 11 where he has to speak plainly to the disciples that hammers home the point again and again that Jesus didn't leave the disciples to their own ideas about God to preach what they thought about God or what they thought they knew about God time and time and time again it shows the disciples knew nothing about anything so he had to give them a specific message to preach 
he wouldn't have entrusted them with the power of God to cast out devils and to heal the sick without a specific message. I'm convinced of that with all that I'm worth. So Jesus has to plainly say Lazarus died. But we'll go to where he is. Verse 16, then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. It's always good to have people around you that encourage you. And it seems to be one in every group that says we're going to die. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had laid in the grave four days already. Now, Bethany was nigh to Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. It's about 12 miles, I think. Many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She had faith in his healing power. But apparently that's as far as her faith went. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it unto thee. She's got a glimmer of hope, but not the same degree of faith. Jesus said unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Then she gets religious on him. She says, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So many people try to put off the blessings of God until we get to heaven. That's exactly what she's doing. She said, well, I know he'll rise again when the, when the resurrection time comes. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And she didn't even stop and say, you mean today? Now, if you had been around Jesus and seen all the healing miracles and the mighty and wonderful things that he's done, and at this point in time, he's already raised some other people from the dead. According to Mark and Luke's gospel, he raised a young boy from the dead, messed up his funeral, delivered him back to his mother. So even that's not out of the question. But Martha gets religious. She says, well, I know what the resurrection is at the last day. But Jesus says unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. You don't have to wait till the last day. I'm the resurrection now. Now, the resurrection he's talking about is not the resurrection from spiritual death. But he's saying, I have authority to execute judgment even on physical death. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She said unto him, Yea, Lord. At least this much she's got right. She said, Yes, Lord. I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which has come into the world. That gives Jesus free reigning course to do whatever he's going to do. When she had so said, she went away and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, when they that were with her, with Mary in the house, and comforted her, I'm sure that was a big help. When they saw Mary, she, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goes unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? 
They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, behold how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man, now here's what the religious religious people will say, could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Well, they were against him when he opened the blind eyes. But now they're complaining, saying, well, if only he had had the power to do something about this too. Hypocrites. Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, now, that groaning within himself twice, that's, that's significant. That's the Holy Ghost stirring him to action. Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. And it was a cave, and a stone lay upon him, upon it. And Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said unto him, Lord, by this time he stinks. Martha was always concerned about things being just so-so. By this time he stinks, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe, thou should see the glory of God? I want you to notice something about Martha. And I, I'm not throwing stones because she's in a tough place. But it would have been a whole lot better for her to keep her mouth shut except for the part about believing that she was the Christ. I wonder if that's a principle that we could follow. Okay. Jesus said unto her, said I not unto thee, that if thou would believe, thou should see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Now, folks, you need to incorporate verse 41 and 42 into your life. God did not hear Jesus because he was the son of God. He heard Jesus because he was a man committed to God's will and plan and purpose for his life. Now for us, that means we become children of God. But the point I'm trying to make is God wouldn't hear Jesus and not hear you. You should begin to say continually. Father, I thank you that you always hear me. Now, when Jesus says, I thank you that you have heard me and that you hear me always, he's talking about having talked to God about this situation before. Now, when was that? It's been some time between the time that he heard Lazarus was sick and the four days that have transpired. And it seems to me that it was immediately because the first thing Jesus says about this situation is that this sickness will not result ultimately in Lazarus' death. I can't overemphasize that Jesus always talked about end result. He didn't talk about the circumstances. He didn't say, well, I'm glad this is not a real or the worst case sickness that there could possibly be. He always spoke end result. The sickness shall not ultimately result in Lazarus' death. Lazarus died, but that wasn't the last part of the story. So Jesus said, Father, I thank you that thou hast heard me. This is a good thing to say for anything that you're believing God for already. I thank you, Father, that you've heard me. 
but the answer is mine. And I thank you that you hear me always. You know, there's a lot of things that Jesus said that the church world considers to be blasphemy if we would say of ourselves that we should say of ourselves. For example, Jesus said, I always do those things that please my Father. Well, if you're walking in love and if you've cast your cares upon the Lord, you can say the same thing. Well, I thought that would bless you. But it's true. And I I thank you, Father, that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead, notice that phrase, he that was dead, came forth, bound hand and foot, with grave clothes and his face was bound about with a napkin and Jesus said unto them loose him and let him go can I ask you a question if he's bound hand and foot how's he coming forth the Jews buried according to what they learned in Egypt it's a mummification process now it's not the elaborate thing that you see in the tombs of pharaohs and all that kind of stuff But you remember that's what Mary was doing on the resurrection day. She was going to finish the embalming process. On Jesus' body. Well the embalming process. Because of the the arid climate. They'd put these spices. On the body. And they would harden. To whatever degree rich people had. Many spices, you know, a full load put on so that it created a mummification process. Poorer people didn't have so much, but it was still the same principle. But notice it says that Lazarus was bound hand and foot. If he's bound hand and foot, he's not walking. What I want you to see is the words of Jesus. The word of God spoken has the power to draw even the dead out of the the grave in such a powerful force that he comes drawn by the power of Jesus' words. He's sucked out of that place like a magnet. Not walking on his own power. That's why he says loose him and let him go. He's alive inside that shell. Like you break through the shell and let him go. Now, this was the event that was the final straw for the Jews in their plans or their desires to kill Jesus. It says, from that point forward, the Jews took counsel, began making plans to kill him. And someone raised an objection in the the Jewish council, the Pharisees, among the Pharisees. And the high priest said, it's better for one to die than a whole nation to die. He's speaking prophetically about the death of Jesus on the cross. But notice how Jesus used his authority. And Jesus said the same works that he did will do also. Now I don't suggest you go looking for caves to speak to dead people to come out of. But there certainly is a principle that we could follow. In any work that we do. Relative to God. Can I ask you another question before we go? Where's the devil in this? 
Notice Jesus does not stand there and say, I take authority over the devil in my name. Satan, you turn him loose. Are you in a hurry? Give me five more minutes. Turn to Luke 4. I'm sorry this has taken me so long, folks. But I'm seeing so much stuff in here. I could go forever. Luckily, we don't have a three-story building so that somebody falls out of the window and dies. (laughs) Like when Paul preached long. First part of the chapter tells us, or the middle part of the chapter tells us about Jesus preaching in Nazareth. This is early on in his ministry. He's been to Capernaum and now he comes to his own hometown where he grew up and he preaches the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to heal the sick and do works and wonders and signs and so forth. Well, they don't accept him. In fact, they want to kill him. And their unbelief keeps Jesus, prevents Jesus from being able to do any mighty work, the Bible says. They take a hold of him and try and take him to the top of the, the brow of the hill where there's a cliff. They intended to, to cast him down and to kill him, which is not a good start in the city. But the Bible says Jesus passing by through the midst of them went his way. Why? Because he has authority to lay down his life and to take it up again because of what God has told him. No man takes it from him. Jesus told the the 70, Behold, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. I want you to notice what Jesus told the 70. The devil is never going to be your problem. You exercise your authority according to the word of God, and the devil will never be your problem. Now, I know that's a radically different concept than most of the church world understands or believes. But the devil is not your problem. He wants you to think that he's the big bad preventer of all things. After this event, it says in verse 31, And Jesus came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. That means more than one. He was there for a couple of weeks, at least. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with power. Jesus was not going everywhere and teaching at every occasion about his own power. Who's teaching that man had authority? That was a big part of Jesus' ministry here on the earth. He's teaching that man had authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. And they were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. Notice they credit his teaching. What a word is this? Notice this is working just the same way that he said that it would work. 
They don't credit him as being the Christ, the son of God. They don't say he's doing these miracle works and casting out devils because he's the son of God. They said he's teaching that man has authority and then he shows it by exercising authority over the devil and the devil obeys. But here's what I want you to see about what the devil says, that demon inside the man, the man with the unclean spirit. Notice the first thing the devil says. We get the idea that the devil, and when I talk about the devil, I'm not just talking about Satan. I'm talking about his evil spirits that are at work in the world. We get the idea that the devil is consumed with wrecking our lives personally. I've even had people say, Pastor Mike, you're going to have to pray for me. The devil's been after me all week long. Brother Hagin talks about the woman that stood up in his church to testify, and she said, the devil's been after me all week long. Bless his holy name. He made a joke about how she had her praise misplaced. Knows what the devil says. The devil cried out with a loud voice saying, let us alone, more than one. Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know, who thee, I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Now, I believe firmly that the devil was expressing resistance because he saw Jesus as the Son of God. Now, what would that mean? If Jesus is operating on the earth as the Son of God and not the Son of Man, that would mean that Jesus did not have legal authority to do anything about the devil. Now, the reason for that is because Jesus said himself that he saw Satan cast out of heaven as lightning. Cast out to where? To the earth. The Bible says that evil spirits have been reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness until the day of judgment. Well, the Bible talks about the earth lying in darkness and the kingdom, Satan's kingdom being the kingdom of darkness. So apparently, evil spirits have a right to operate here on the earth until the time that they're destroyed. But notice what's first and foremost on their mind. Art thou come to destroy us before the time? I want you to understand something, folks. We give the devil, well, we people, hopefully you don't. But people give the devil a lot of credibility for his time and efforts and works against them in their own personal lives. You know what's first and foremost in the devil's mind? time of his destruction it's clearly shown here and I could show you three other examples in the four gospels that show the same exact thing now they're trying to exhibit resistance or exert resistance by saying I know who you are you're the son of God well Jesus was the son of God but that's not the reason he was operating on the earth with power so Jesus says, shut up and come out. Now, did they want to come out? Here's what I want you to see about the devil and the authority that we've been given. The devil won't, Did the devil want to come out? No, that's why he's resisting. The power of Jesus' words dislodged him against his will. He said, you do the same works. Everyone that Jesus spoke healing to, everyone that he laid hands on to be healed, the spoken word and the action of faith dislodged sickness and disease against the devil's power. 
Somehow or another, it seems that many people think that authority can only be exercised effectively if you can get the devil to cooperate. There's no cooperation issue involved. The word of God is with power. And when you know who you are, and when you know the authority that you have in that name, you can break the devil's power whether he wants to be broken or not. Because first and foremost on his mind is his own destruction. He knows it's coming. Might be a good thing to remind him of every day when you get up. Instead of listening to him, let him listen to you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for what you've done for us. We thank you that because we are born of flesh and blood, we've been given authority. Your original command of authority for mankind has never been rescinded. So we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' holy name, that in that name of Jesus, the devil is not an issue. He'll never be our problem because we have authority over him. No matter what he tells us, no matter what he pretends, we have authority over sickness. We have authority over disease. We have authority over lack and every other characteristic of spiritual death. In the name of Jesus, Satan, we command you to take your hands off of our bodies. We break your power over the children of God. In Jesus' name. We command you to take your hand off of our finances because the blessing of Abraham belongs to us. And that blessing of Abraham is abundance, no lack. We thank you, Father, that when we speak your word, our authority is exercised and the will of God is accomplished. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us. I apologize for going long. I'll make it up one minute at a time over the next 20 years. <laughs>